0: Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Now this morning, um, we're actually kicking off a brand new series titled Tension in the um, the subtitle of this series is called Living in the Balance, and, and I know that this word tension might be like an odd name to, for a sermon series, but once we get started, you'll actually kind of understand where I'm going with this, but uh, what I want to do is begin with this morning is I just want to begin with the word itself, tension. Now, tension is identified as the act or the action of stretching something to stiffness. In fact, it's like taking a rope, right, and you pull on both ends and you, and you stretch it to make it tight. That's simply the idea uh, of what tem- tension is. It's, it's two opposing forces pulling on something and stretching it until it's, it's tight or it's stiff. In fact, um, when I say the word tension, many of you immediately have a negative picture of what tension is. Uh, you think of tension um, as something like pain. You think about the tension in your body somewhere. Maybe you have like a tension headache or maybe you have this tension in your back that's causing a muscle spasm or you have a backache or you just have this tension somewhere in your body. Maybe it's your shoulders or, or your neck or You get this tension in your stomach, you know, and the tension that you think about relates to pain. And some of you, when you think about tension, you think about conflict, okay? Uh, you think about the, the conflict between people. I mean, we've all heard it said, you know, there was some tension between those two, or you know, the tension was so thick that you could cut it with a with a knife, right? Um, and, and that kind of tension makes us think of the conflict between people, the conflict between nations, right? There's national tensions, international tensions. There's tensions between um, ethnic groups. There's tensions between different people groups. There's racial tensions, you know, uh, cultural tensions, you know, all. All kinds of this stuff, and, and so we think about tension in the sense of conflict or, or this looming conflict. And then some of you think about tension, you think about uh, fear, okay? Because we've all experienced this really kind of like this fear induced tension in our lives where you feel all wound up and uptight about this imminent or perceived you know, danger. Uh, that, that fear causes you to be tense. In fact, that word tense is actually from the same root word as the word tension. Okay? And it's this idea of stiffness and, and we all have experienced this kind of tension. I mean, if you were a kid and if your parents or your mom ever said your first, middle, and last name all together, <laughs> there was tension because you knew that you were in trouble, right? Yeah. I mean, Sherman Lee Burkhead, I'm telling you, I know that I was in, in trouble. Okay? We all know what that tension's like. And, and we also know like when you're driving along and you look up and you see that red light in the mirror... There's instant tension, right? Yes. Instantly, your body's tense, your, your heart starts to race. I, you know what it's like to have that fear-induced tension. In fact... Um Several years ago, I was actually in a bank that was robbed. And you talk talking about tension, all right? But, uh, but they actually caught the guys really quick, and so that was good. But then months later, after I've already forgotten about it, it's like not even on my radar anymore, some guy walks up on my door, you know, knocks. He looks just like a regular guy. He says, are you Sherman?" Sure, I go, yep. He goes, yeah, I'm, I'm Mark Smith from the FBI, all right? Now, you talk about tension, all right? Because all, right, all of a sudden, I'm thinking... What did I do wrong? <laughs> why is this guy here? I mean, you know, I forgot about the bank robbery. I forgot about that. That was the reason why he was coming to visit. All right. But I'm thinking, what did I do, do wrong? Did I like forget to pay my taxes or something? I mean, is there something I didn't do? All right. It's a good thing that I actually went to the restroom before I opened the door. Right. Yeah. Otherwise, tension would have got really, really messy that day. So, um, so we've all experienced this kind of tension. And at some level, we've experienced, you know, all three of these kinds of tension. We, you know, we, we know what it's like to be in pain because of tension. We know uh, we've experienced the the conflict-related attention, and we've also you know uh, experienced the uh, the tension that's brought on by fear, but. That's just only one side of tension. Actually, tension can, have, uh, can be a positive force as well. Um, you see, there's positive forms of tension. Like, for instance, there is uh, what is called literary tension. Okay, The tension that you find in a story. Every story needs tension to make it a story. You see, every story begins with its introduction, right? and then it bends, begins to build up, and then you have the conflict, is where the tension gets the highest, and it grows, and everything is tight and tense. And then you have the resolution, where the tension... Tension relaxes. Right? You need tension to make a story a story. Another good kind of tension is organizational tension. right? Uh, the kind of tension that organizations need in order to keep working. For instance, the government is supposed to be built on a tension between three branches. The executive, the legislature, and the judiciary. Okay? And the idea is that this tension is designed uh, to act as a restraining force to keep you know, certain groups from having too much power. Now, obviously, in the time that we're living in right now, that balance is kind of getting out of balance, Uh, but there's still an organizational tension that keeps our country from sliding all the way into a a dictatorship, at least for the moment anyway. But uh, here at First Baptist Church, we also live under certain types of organizational tension. Um, For instance, um, one of the tensions we operate under is this tension between excellence and stewardship. You see everything that we do at First Baptist Church from Sunday morning to vacation Bible school to our uh, annual church-wide campaigns to even the way that we do projects and the building materials that we use. We want to be excellent in everything we do, okay? All right, there's uh, but we want we want to we want to do the, everything the best way that we possibly can do. But the problem is is excellence costs money. And so we need to be good stewards so that we we can manage the church resources and not run out of money in our pursuit of this excellence and so these two ideals, you know, are, are, an excellent example of this because excellence pulls us one way and then good stewardship, you know, pulls us another way. And what that does is it creates a healthy tension because think about this. If we we're focused just on stewardship, then, then we would, all we would do is save money. And then everything we would do would be just basically the cheapest way possible. And I'm telling you just from experience, that's not good. I mean, there's a reason why people say you get what you pay for, right? Okay? And, 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 and in fact, there's been projects that have been done here in the church in the past where people have just used the cheapest thing that they could possibly use as far as building materials go, and the problem is... It didn't look very good, number one. And number two, it doesn't last. And what this does is it actually creates this image like we just don't care, right? That God isn't good enough for us to do our best. But then on the other hand, we don't want to focus so much on excellence that we spend all the money and we blow the budget, Alright, So it's it, it's 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 not good to do simply either or. We need to balance this excellence with good stewardship. It's a healthy, necessary type of tension to have. It's organizational tension, okay? And then you have Structural tension. Okay, this is a tension that is applied, is like, like again when you take a rope and you apply tension to both sides, all right, and then this tension is used to tie things down. Like you take a rope, you apply tension to both sides to hold things down, all right. Or you also have this tension, you know, where, where you have like a, a cable or a rope that lifts something, or you have like that like the cables that run through a suspension bridge. Okay, those t- cables are put under a lot of tension to make them structurally sound. Or just like a tightrope, you stretch it really, really tight and it can support someone 's weight in fact, more and more uh, construction projects involve what 's called post tension slabs they 're concrete slabs that have cables that run through them and once the uh, the concrete is dry, what they do is they put these cables under tension, like thirty thousand pounds of tension, and it creates a really stiff, rigid foundation. It makes it structurally more strong and so it 's a good kind of tension now. With all of that, all right, whether tension, whether it's good or whether it's bad, at its very simplest form, is is, is like this rope. Okay, it's, it's simply this: you have two or more. Forces that are pulling and stretching on something to create this state of rigidity or stiffness. Okay, and whether it's the, the tension that gives you a headache or the tension that supports a structural load, at its core, it's really both. They're both the same idea. This, this idea of stretching something to create something that's really stiff and rigid. Okay, and here's the thing: if one of these forces gives in to the other, all right then what you have is you end up creating slack in that tension now if you have a tension headache that's a good thing you want that tension to release but in case of that load that you've got tied down on your truck when you're driving 70 miles an hour down the freeway, you don't want that tension to get loosened up. That would be a bad thing. So I say all that, okay, and I gave you this little education about tension because there's a, there's a tension I want, I, want you to, I want to talk about uh, this, this week, and it's, it's theological tension. Now, theological tension is a kind of tension that's found in the Bible when you have certain ideas that seem to be at complete odds with one another, okay? There are just some ideas in the Bible that seem to be, at times, you know, in conflict or at odds with one another. There seems to be these ideas that seem to work against each other in the Bible. For example, the doctrine of the incarnation, okay? God became man, all right? This is an idea that people struggle with, okay? I mean, because we talked about this before. Jesus was fully 100% God and 100% man. And for some people, this is a tension that they struggle with. How can Jesus be, be both God and man? But if you think about it, if Jesus was not, if he was only God, but not fully human, then really his sacrifice was really meaningless in a show. He was just basically just pretending. On the other hand, if Jesus is a man, but he's not fully God, then Jesus is simply this created being you know, that really can't save us. Okay? And he's certainly not worthy of the worship that we have to offer him. So Jesus being fully God and fully man is the necessary uh, theological tension that helps us to see the real truth about who he is and why he's able to save us. This tension between those ideas is actually where the truth is. The Bible is filled with all kinds of this kind of tension, like the tension of good works, okay? Because we're not saved by our works, we're saved by what? Grace, that's right. But James, the brother of Jesus, says faith without works is what? Dead. dead. So, which is it? Well, it's it's both. There's 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 tension there. Okay. Well, what about the tension between God's complete sovereignty over every tiny little detail in the universe, and yet somehow I'm still responsible for my actions? Okay. Well, which is it? Okay. Well, it's it's both. There's there's tension there. All right. Or like the idea that God's limitless loving kindness, okay, compared to his his wrathful judgment okay well which is it well it's it's both god is both of those things his character is found in the tension of both of these ideas. the theological tension is necessary because it helps us to see the real truth about god and his nature and his his will in scripture and so with that that's what we're going to talk about for the next several weeks we're going to look at several ideas in the bible several doctrines in the bible where this tension exists and we're going to look at the forces uh, that create this tension, in an effort to better understand the way that God has revealed Himself uh, to us. In fact, that right there is a tension in its own sense. Okay, that God who is who is infinitely greater and infinitely more complex than the universe, which means He's greater than my my understanding. He's completely above, beyond my ability to, to marginally understand Him. But then at the same time, this particular God Himself, you know, you know, loves us and. Wants to have a personal, intimate relationship with him. I mean, I mean, think about this for a second. I mean, you talk about tension. The greatest being in all of existence, okay, the likes of which we can't even possibly put our mind around, wants us to have a loving, personal relationship with him, okay? And he knows all there is to know about me. He loves me in spite of my flaws and all the stupid things that I do, and he is greater than my imagination, yet he still wants me to know him. There's, there's tension there. And it's like the, the, the idea when people, you know, like Jesus, you know, calling me friend. All right, for me, there's a lot of tension to that. Okay, I'm not Jesus's friend because, you know, I'm like, hey, Jesus, let's hang out. Right, all right. Okay. I'm his friend because he decided to be my friend. Alright. There's a tension in Jesus' gift of friendship in my unworthiness of that gift. Because I'm not his friend because I decided, you know, I'm cool enough to hang out with Jesus. Alright? I'm his friend because he called me friend. That's why when I hear people say things like, Well, Jesus is my homeboy, I immediately have physical tension in my body. Okay? There's it immediately affects me because if you say that Jesus is your homeboy, you don't understand who Jesus is. Is, because just because you call, you know, Jesus your friend doesn't mean... You can call him your homeboy, because to say something like that implies some sort of equality with jesus, and, and that 's not the truth because you ain 't equal with Jesus, all right Jesus is not your homeboy he 's not your bud he 's not your n word he 's not your part of your posse he 's not your pal okay I mean he certainly should be your best friend, absolutely make no mistake about that, but he is your friend because he chose you okay and because he 's God you still owe him the deepest level of awe, admiration, reverence, worship, and respect. And to say that he's your homeboy is frankly disrespectful because it diminishes who he is. Now, with that... Let me stepping off my soapbox. Well, um, today what we're going to do is we're going to look at three points of tension that I believe are probably the most important for us to get our heads wrapped around. In fact, these three are so important that if you don't fully understand and embrace this this tension, um, that, that 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 you could actually kind of get yourself in, in, into trouble theologically and practically. It creates trouble for us in how we understand God, and it also creates trouble in how we actually live our lives as Christ followers. And all three of these tension points are found in John chapter 1. So if you have your Bible with you, um, or you have a Bible app on your mobile phone, um, you know, turn with me to John chapter 1. And if not, I've actually included some of the text in your notes there, so you can follow along there, or you can follow along up here. Now, as always, before we jump into this text, it's let's, talk, let's take a moment and talk about the background of this book, because it's always 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 good to take the time to get the background on a book before you dig into a particular text this helps you to keep things in the proper context and what we need to know about the book of John it was written by the apostle John okay who by the way is the same John that's mentioned throughout the gospels he is the one and same all right he is the gospel that, that was first he, he was the uh, the, uh, the apostle that was first selected he was uh, one of Jesus's first 3 disciples and and friends he was, um, he was so loved by Jesus and he was so uh, trusted by Jesus that Jesus, while he hung on the cross, asked John to take care of his mom. Now, I don't know about you, okay, but for me, that says a lot. Because I'm going to ask you to take care of my mom, and then you, you must be somebody special. And John was special. Like I said, he was one of Jesus's three inner circle. And, 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 and John really knew a lot about Jesus, and he knew Jesus intimately and personally. Now, the other thing about John that you need to know is that he was the oldest living apostle. He outlived everybody else. He outlived all the other apostles, okay? And so John was there from the very beginning. He was there when Jesus first began his ministry, and he was there as the church blew up and grew all over the Middle East and the Roman Empire. And so John, you know, he's basically seen it all. He's basically talked to everybody that there need, that, that there is to talk to. He's read the gospel accounts and he's no doubt had contact with the likes of Paul and Timothy as, uh, as John pastored the church of Ephesus at one point, which is the church that Paul's Started and Timothy had pastored, so John, you know, near the end of his life, you know, he could have just like went off into the sunset. He could have just, you know, ministered to people, and his impact would still be felt in Christianity. But for some reason, near the end of his life, uh, whether it was somebody asking him to do it or whether he just felt led by God to do it, he decided to write a gospel account from his own perspective and from his own experience. And so it's like one of the last books of the Bible that were written. Now understand. Just about every book of the New Testament, again, was written, probably except for Revelations. And he's no doubt probably read these books. And for all intents and purposes, the story of Christ was really told. And the theology of, uh, of Jesus and the faith was, was very well developed. But John still decided to write one last gospel because he felt he needed something to, he needed to communicate. And this gospel uh, that he wrote was different because John decided not to cover the exact same events that the other gospels covered. Uh, in fact, what he did was he, he covered different events to highlight certain issues, and his gospel was written to highlight two important themes. Okay, The first was the fact that Jesus is God. Okay, That's like one of the number one priorities he had when he wrote his gospel, that Jesus is God. The second was that based on that fact that Jesus is God in the, the flesh, what do you need to do about it? That's the second theme. Okay? In fact, the subtitle given to the gospel of John by so many people is actually Believe in and live because John clearly wrote you know what you know his gospel so that you would believe the right things about Jesus and based on what you believe then you would be saved and have eternal life now with that perspective let's look at the text John chapter 1 verse 1 okay and it reads in the beginning was the word the word was with god and the word was God. And, and, and let me just tell you something. Anytime that you want to write, if you write something for other people to read, or if you uh, are preparing your speech, what you need to do is something, uh, you write something that gets people's attention. Okay. You need an attention getter, something that makes them sit up and pay attention to you. And so many books and many speeches and many movies have that dramatic attention getter right up front, right from the very beginning. But, and, and John, what he does, he does exactly that because, because right from the beginning, he opens the gospel up his gospel With an earth shattering, mind blowing, controversial, assumption smashing attention getter. This is the opening statement that that he put in there that was designed to knock people off their feet. It was like he pulled a pin on the hand grenade and just lobbed it in the middle of a crowded room. This had the effect to really stir things up because he says, a very controversial thing here. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and we know that in this context the Word is Jesus. In the beginning was the the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. You see, right from the very beginning, he creates this enormous tension point, because John, in his first verse, he conveys basically two separate ideas about Jesus that seem to be at odds with each other, because the facts are, these ideas create a tension that reveals the truth about who Jesus is. He says, Jesus was with God, okay? Very clearly, he says, in the beginning, the word was with God. But at the same time, he says, Jesus was God. Okay? And, and there's, there's tension there. Jesus, the Son of God, was with God, and then simultaneously, at the same time, he himself was God. That's tension. Now, now some people would say, well, how, that can't be right. I mean, he, how can he be, be with God and, and, and be God unless he's a separate God? Okay? Others will say, well, that's not really what this text means. It means that Jesus was like a God, that Jesus was simply the first created being, and he's, he's worshipped like a God because he can't really be with God and at the same time be God. But that is not what this text says. Okay? This text very clearly says that Jesus was with God and Jesus was himself, in fact, God. Not a God, not a different God, but God himself. And what's interesting is the word that John uses here in the Greek, the expression that he uses for the word was, okay, like the word was, God, okay, this Greek expression it significantly communicates that Jesus was divine. In fact, the word that John uses here in this text is the word ain. Okay? It's, I don't know how you would get, get that pronunciation from that, but that's what it says. It's ain. Okay? And, and that word ain is, is, is from another Greek word that's used in the Bible to express the identity of God. The I Am identity of God. Okay, that's the name that God gave Himself in Exodus. I Am the eternally existent One. Okay, and that's where this word Ain comes from. And so, what this text then literally means is that in the beginning was eternally the Word Jesus. Right. So Jesus existed eternally, and the Word was eternally with God, and the Word was eternally God. So Jesus was eternally with God, meaning he was never created, Okay, and he was eternally God himself. And so in this opening phrase, John throws us into this tension between these two ideas that seem to be at odds with one another. That Jesus was with God, and then Jesus was God, and somehow he was fully divine and fully God, and yet he wasn't alone as God but there can only be one god right so how's that possible well the truth exists as we said in the tension between these two facts jesus is in fact god and he isn't alone as god and this is really an idea that was communicated in genesis 1 where it says in the beginning in the beginning god or the word is elohim <laughs> God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. And this word Elohim, what's interesting about that, it communicates two separate ideas just like John does. Elohim, the word, actually simultaneously is singular and plural. The name of God reflects both the idea of plurality and unity. That there's one God... But he exists in multiple persons. And that's reflected just in his name. And this is further vindicated when he says, um, And God, Elohim, said let us, plural, make man in our, plural, own image. So, now the notice this. God, Elohim, created man in his singular image, the image of God, He, again, singular, created Him, male and female. He created them. You see, in the very first book of the Bible, we see clearly this tension, this shadow of the Trinity, that there is one God who exists as three persons. Each person is distinct, but still all one God. And John echoes this exact same point in his own gospel when he said, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So here's the tension point. Okay? In his own gospel, he says, In the beginning, he was with God, and he was God. Now, you have to understand, if you give up one of these tension points, if you give up one of the the points that anchor this tension, what you have is a Jesus. is Either he's a Jesus who um, is a Unitarian God, which means he's pretending to be Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit by, you know, in different phases. And he fits within the confines of our, our mind. Or he is not actually God himself, but a false God, not worthy of our worship. Now what we understand about, about God is that he's more than we imagine. He's bigger than our imaginations. He's greater than the universe, which means we're not going to be able to easily define him. Any attempt to define him as a unitarian God fails. Okay? God revealing himself through scripture is the only way we're going to be able to understand who he truly is. And in scripture, he reveals himself as both one okay, and unified, but he also exists in multiple persons. This is the inescapable truth of the tension of that particular verse. Jesus was with God and Jesus was with God. God And that right there, that's just the first verse. It's like the first verse in this book. Because look at verse 14, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, in this one text, there are two really important points of tension. Okay, the first one has to do with Jesus and the incarnation. The second one has to do with the nature of Jesus. So let's take a look at the first one. The tension points that come from the, they actually come from the phrase uh, in this verse that reads, "And the Word became flesh," because. Um, in this particular phrase, again, there's two competing ideas. Because if you'll remember, you know, in verse 1 of this chapter, the Word was God. Okay? So the Word was God. And then in verse 14, Jesus became what? Flesh. Okay? So when Jesus came to the earth, He was fully God. He was already fully God. Then He became flesh, fully man. And from that moment forward, for all eternity forward, Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. You see, this is the truth about the incarnation. And in that truth, there's a tension. And as we said earlier, if Jesus was only God and not fully a human being, his physical death and his physical suffering really didn't mean anything. Because it was just for show. Right? He didn't really sacrifice anything. He didn't lose anything. But on the other hand, if Jesus is fully God but not I mean fully man, but not fully God, then Jesus is simply just a created being that really can't save us because he's because he's just a surrogate. He doesn't actually didn't actually accomplish anything. He's just a puppet. So in order for us to have a real sacrifice, God had to free us himself. And to do that, he needed to become fully man to experience our life and to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. And in his death, okay, Christ, because he was fully man, experienced real pain and real loss and was offering us a real life-giving sacrifice. So Jesus can't just be God or just be man. He can't be just fifty percent God and fifty percent man. Okay, he's fully God and fully man. That's the tension, you know, where, where, where uh, that's the tension point where we actually see the truth about Jesus. The truth about Jesus resides between those two truths. And if you lose any one of those anchor points. You lose that tension. If you lose the tension, you lose the truth. Now, the second tension point has to do with the fact of what John says that Jesus was full of grace and truth. You see, Jesus wasn't just simply full of grace and all loving, okay? But Jesus wasn't just simply full of truth and, you know, all like, you better do this. He's not some random combination of either one of those. He's not 50% grace and 50% truth. He was full to the brim. That's the language that that, that John uses. He was full to the brim of both grace and truth. Now this... This is enormously important. It's an enormously important point of attention because think about this. Grace is the unmerited, undeserved favor of God, but truth is a very clear expectations of who God is and what he requires of us. And so, so on one hand, grace says to you, you're forgiven. And, 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 and truth on the other hand says you're accountable for your actions. You know, where grace says, I love you no matter what truth says, you still need to obey. You see, in this one phrase, there's a whole world of tension between these ideas. That's, That Jesus is loving and he's forgiving and he's full of grace and mercy. And on the other hand, Jesus fully expects our loyalty, obedience and compliance in all that he calls us to do. Now, this right here is a place where so many of us Christians and so many churches struggle because here's what we want. We want for it to be one way or the other. We don't want it to be, to be about both grace and truth. We don't want both of those together. I mean, we're like, just let's make everything okay. Let's just make it all about grace. No matter what happens, I'm forgiven. All right? If not, then just spell it out for me. Give me all the rules, give me all the checklists so I know what to do, and that way I can keep track of what I'm doing and and, and how how good I am. That's what we want. We want it to be one way or the other. We don't want both because trying to live out both... Is is really difficult. It's hard to live out both grace and truth simultaneously. That's why you have churches that bend towards rules and legalism and, and, and strong warnings and condemnation. And it's not that they don't love Jesus. They absolutely do love Jesus. It's just they're trying to be faithful to the truth. Because they believe that the truth okay, is the answer to living in a fallen world. They say that we need the truth to stand against our sinful culture. Then, on the other hand, you have churches that are essentially willing to follow culture wherever, wherever it goes. And they don't fo- focus on the explicit commands found in the Bible. They just focus on grace. And, and it's not like they don't love Jesus because they do love Love Jesus. It's just everything that they see is through that lens of grace. And they believe that grace is the answer to living in this fallen world. And, and because we're sinners and we're all broken and we're all in pain and we all need that grace. Now understand, both of these positions You know, have some truth to them. But both of these positions are also troublesome. Because both of them claim to represent the gospel accurately. And, and both of them have huge theological and practical implications that are really... Um, dangerous and destructive you see for the group that focuses on the truth too much they create an artificial barrier between between people and god they make it about what you do rather than what you simply believe and they tend to marginalize certain people and and certain people groups and culture okay and they marginalize certain behaviors and they create this artificial separation between them and the culture around them that makes them stand out and not in a good way okay it makes them look angry and hateful and mean and narrow minded And it causes them to lose their relevance in culture because nobody can identify with them and nobody wants to be like them. But on the other hand, the group that focuses too much on grace ends up at best throwing God's expectation for obedience out the window. And at worst, they end up sanctioning behaviors that are tantamount to to spiritual suicide. They're so focused on grace. They don't want to offend anybody. They they don't want to speak out against any behavior, okay, and they just want every to feel loved and want everybody feel accepted and and to feel good about themselves and they embrace the culture so much they lose their identity as people who are set apart by god and they lose their ability to save the lost because they lose their ability to repent of anything now fortunately for us though Jesus was not filled with just grace, and he was not filled with just truth. He was filled with both. And because he was filled with both, he was able to minister to people in a way that was loving and compassionate, yet at the same time transforming and life-saving. Okay? And a great, great example of this story is found in John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, we, we have this story of Jesus, you know, and he's asked to pronounce judgment on a woman who is caught up in sin, She was caught up in the act of adultery. And, 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 and adultery was a sin at the time that was punishable by death. And so we pick up the story in John uh, 8, verse 2, and it reads this. It says, Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. And the people came to him. And he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to him, Teacher... This woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, the law of Moses commands us to stone such women. What do you say? They said this, this they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. You see, this is a hugely important moment of tension in the ministry of Jesus because um, because this, the Pharisees at this point, they think they got we 've got him we 've got him all right we 've got him in the trap there 's no way around this because if Jesus was all truth at that moment, like all right, hey, you know what you 're right hey you know what that 's what the law says, so take her out and stone her, then he proves that he really you know really isn't that compassionate, right? That he's really not the, the friend of sinners. but like he's not there to love people that, that, are, that are lost. He's just another per- person focused on the law, just like the Pharisees. But on the other hand, if he goes all grace, right? And he says, well, you know, actually, you know, the law was written for a different time, right? And, and a different, you know, you know a different you know, culture. I mean, it's not really culturally relevant for us today because things have changed in the last thousand years. I mean, Moses, in his understanding of of marriage and adultery is not the same as our understanding of marriage and adultery. So really, you know, well, you know what, what she's doing isn't such a big deal. I mean, I mean everybody's doing it, right? And, and, and everybody has the right to be happy. I mean, especially, you know, if no one's getting hurt. And, and, and you know what? And, and they're, they're, they're mutually consenting adults anyway. So what's the big deal? Especially if she just believes in God. I mean, if she believes in God, then, then all you really need is grace. It's not a big deal. Now, if Jesus went that direction what would have happened? Well, at best, he would have proven himself to be a false teacher and not the Messiah. And at worst, he would have denied his own word because remember, Jesus is God. And where does the law come from? It comes from God. All right? So the law was actually given by Jesus. And so if he denies the law and says, well, it's not such a big deal, then he's denying his own word, which then makes him a liar and would make him an unjust God as well because God is a God of justice. And so it seems that they got Jesus in this tough spot. Like, there's no way out for him. All right? That this is... If he goes the truth route, he's not a friend of sinners. And if he goes the grace route, then he's not the Messiah. But Jesus... Is full of both, grace and truth. And so, it says, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to cast, be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, this right here is something people read and they think they understand. But let's just... Let's just take a moment and look at this a little closer. He says, "If any of you do not have any sin at all in your life, then you be the first to initiate her execution. Okay, by throwing the first stone, because that's what's going to happen. Is throwing the first stone then initiates everybody else to throw stones because they're going to kill her. Okay. Now, notice what he didn't say. He didn't say if you if you have no sin in your life. All right, then you can tell her." That what she did is wrong. But if you have sin in your life, then you can't tell her what she's doing is wrong. Okay? He didn't say that if you have sin in your life, you can't tell her and everybody else that adultery is sin. He didn't say that if you have sin in your life, then you need to then accept and embrace her lifestyle. Okay, because you're a sinner too. Okay? He didn't say that. Okay? He said if you don't have any sin in your life, then you can be the one to execute judgment on her. Okay? If you don't have any sin in your life, then you can be the first person to throw that stone to put her to death. Now, our culture... Text like this, and the often misquoted text about judging is used oftentimes to put Christians in their place. Okay? In fact, you know people say all the time, okay, when you're perfect, then you can judge me. Okay? When you're perfect, you can tell me what's right and wrong. When you're perfect, right, don't you start throwing stones at me, Right? Who are you to judge me? Okay? Those without sin need to cast the first stone. That's the stuff that we hear, okay? But that is not the issue. There's a difference between telling the truth about sin and calling it's what it is versus condemning someone for their sin. There's a difference because that's what Jesus is saying. He says, If you don't have any sin, then condemn her to death. Okay? If you're completely righteous, then condemn her to death. So he isn't, you know, he, so this isn't about calling sin sin. This is about condemning sinners. So he says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw the stone, be the first to throw a stone at her and once more it says he bent down and he wrote on the ground but when he when they heard it they went away one by one beginning with the older ones and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Okay? Now that's the question he's asking. Has no one pronounced you know, your death sentence? Right? That's the question that he's, he's asking. All right? He didn't say, Hey, did anybody tell you what you did was wrong? That's, that's not what he's asking. He says, Has anybody given you the punishment that you deserve? Okay? And so she says, No, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Now, in this verse, Jesus is putting being filled with grace and truth into real world action. Because notice the tension points here. Okay, He says two contrasting things in this statement. He says, I don't condemn you. Which means, I am not going to have you killed. I'm not going to have you get the punishment that you deserve. But then he says, go and sin no more. He says, don't do that again. Don't do it anymore. Now in this Phrase. There's so much stuff that we can uncover, but let me just let me just give you a couple of things. Okay, he says, "Go and sin no more." And by saying this, Jesus actually makes a very clear point that adultery still is very much a sin. Okay, it is a sin against God. Adultery is still a sin. Just like fornication and greed and lust and pride and envy and homosexuality and idolatry. okay, All those things okay, are still sin. Jesus calls sin what it is. It is sin. And God still hates sin. It is still destructive. Now, the second thing is Jesus extends into her grace. He's forgiving her. He forgives her. But he still calls it sin. He doesn't like Gloss it over. He still calls it sin, but he still forgives her. And the third thing that he did is he called sin, sin, and, and forgave her. Okay? And then he commanded her to stop doing it. He told her to sin no more. Okay? You need to change your life. You need to give it up. All right? You need to obey God. You need to repent. You need to stop making excuses for how you feel. And you need to, start, you need to stop sinning. That's exactly what he told her. Now let me ask you. How do you think Jesus would have reacted if she would not have changed and repented immediately and went back to doing what she was doing? How do you think that Jesus would have reacted if she have been like, you know, Jesus is really full of grace and he's love and, 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 and I'm not going to stop doing what I'm doing because what I'm doing really isn't really that wrong anyway. I mean, it's just my lifestyle. In fact, you know, I think that right, what I'm doing is right for me. It's, it's right for me because how I make my living and I like doing this. So it can't be wrong and I think other people doing this as well is good too. So I'm not going to stop because Jesus is love and grace anyway. How do you think he would have reacted if she would have accepted his grace but then rejected his truth? Do you think there would have been consequences? I know for a fact there would have been consequences. Because if you remember in the book of Acts, God killed a husband and a wife for lying to the Holy Spirit. Okay? If you remember that story, Ananias and Sapphira, God struck them dead one after the next. And guess what? What? They were believers, All right? You see, you have to remember that God is absolutely gracious and loving, but God is still a God of justice and truth. God is loving, but He is still a God of wrath, and He will not be mocked. Now, what we have to understand from this story is that Jesus is gracious and forgiving, but He still expects for us to turn from our rebellion and become obedient. Jesus is full of both grace and in truth, He was full of grace and says, I don't condemn you. But at the same time, he's full of truth and says, go and sin no more. And he absolutely meant it. And from what we from understand from history, that's exactly what she did. She accepted that gift of his grace and she repented of her sin and began to follow Jesus being obedient to the truth. You see, grace and truth are the forces that stretch out and make tight the rope of salvation because you cannot have salvation without truth and you can't have salvation without grace. If you give up grace, all you have is legalism and your own ability to make yourself right by your actions. And without, without, without truth, what you have is an unrepentant and unregenerate heart. Salvation requires both. The tension between grace and truth is where salvation is. Salvation is a reality that is created by the tension between grace and truth. And that's why Jesus was full of both grace and truth. And that's why he lived it out. Now the question is, as it always is, now that we know that, what do you do with this? How do you apply this? I mean, what does this tension between grace and truth have to do with us? Well, it has everything to do with us. You see, if Jesus is full of grace and truth, then I need to be full of grace and truth, which means you need to be full of grace and truth. And because we're the church, the church needs to be full of grace and truth. And Jesus is our model for that. Let me just say what this means. It means that as Christ followers, what we need to do is we need to see everyone around us. The way that God sees them as his children. That he loves. And we need to be able to say to them. That no, no matter who you are. No matter where you've been. No matter what you've done. You're welcome here. You're welcome in our building. You're welcome in our community. You're welcome in our lives. Okay? And we love you. And we, we care about you. And we're, we're here for you. No strings attached. But understand we're going to, to be honest with you. And we're going to tell you the truth. Because we love you. We will tell you the truth. We owe it to you. And we owe it to God. To be real with you. And to be honest with you. And to tell you the truth. Even If it hurts. And so we're going to tell you that drunkenness is killing your family and your career and your relationships. And that pornography is not some harmless vice. It's rewiring your brain and it's eating you up from the inside out. And that jealousy and bitterness and unforgiveness are all things that are going to destroy you and your family. And and, and that infidelity and adultery and homosexuality and pornography and lust and envy, all those things are sin. They are still sin and they dishonor God. And that sin will cost you something in your life because sin always has a cost. We're also going to tell you the way that you act at work away from church and away from your Christian friends matters. And the way you treat your boss and the way that you treat your co-workers, that matters too. And the way that you you treat your kids and talk to your wife, that matters. And the way that you treat strangers, especially those strangers that are different from you, that matters. But you also have to understand, we just like Jesus in John chapter 8, we don't condemn you. We don't hate you. We don't look down our self-righteous noses at you. We forgive you. We love you. And more importantly, we identify with you. And we're here for you. And we're praying for you. And you and your life and your hopes and your dreams are all important to us. And we want to help you. We want to help you to draw close to, to the only one who can offer you any real hope and any real healing and any peace at all. The Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we're going to help you get to know him and get to know who he is. And we're going to help you have a relationship with him. And we're going to help you to follow him. And we're going to help you to become spiritually maturing Christ followers who are also full of grace and truth. And we're going to tell you the truth because it's going to get hard. And you're going to have your doubts. And there are going to be times where you're going to wonder where God is. And there are going to be times you're going to feel like you're failing God. And believe me, you absolutely will fail him. But we're going to give you grace and we're not going to be offended by your doubts and we're not going to get upset by your hard questions and we're not going to disown you when you fall down on your face and make a mess of things. We're going to love you and we're going to consistently remind you that Jesus loves you and that he died for you. And when your road gets hard, we're going to be right here with you. No matter what happens, we're going to be right here with you pouring into your life both grace and truth. And that is what you do with that. That is how you apply that. That is how we are to live this out. Because we are a loving community of Christ followers, passionately in pursuit of Jesus, deeply connected to one another and completely committed to sharing the hope that we find in Jesus with our community and our world. Now, to wrap up today's message, I want to... I've got something that, that, that they've passed out for you, and uh, I want to help to illustrate this, this tension between grace and truth. And so, uh, what, what this is just a, a stupid little simple length of rope. Okay, I took a big long rope and I cut it up in pieces. Okay, so, but uh, but what this is this is a visual model of what we're talking about. Okay, and so um, I just want to show you, you know, kind of like what this is. And so, what I want you to do is just just take both ends of the rope in your hands. You know what I mean? Just grab a hold of it. Okay, and then just. Pull it snug. Now, you don't have to like, try to like, break it or like you know, show how strong you are or anything like that. Okay? But just pull it snug. Okay? And as you do, I want you to remind yourself that Jesus is full of both grace and truth. Okay? Because the tension between those two points, between grace and truth, is where salvation is. You cannot have salvation without grace, and you cannot have salvation without truth. You were saved by both grace and truth that Jesus brought. Now, there's a pastor that I listened to one time said, that, that you cannot resolve the tension between grace and truth. And the reality is he's half right. Okay? Uh, he's half right because I can't resolve this tension between grace and truth. But Jesus did on the cross. You see, on the cross the truth is, okay, the righteous requirements of the law had to be met. Okay? And the justice of God was poured out, and the wrath of God the Father was unleashed on God the Son. But by grace, Jesus went to the cross and he hung there willingly in your place and took your punishment. And so on that day, grace and truth converged when God the Father turned his back on God the Son. And Jesus, fully God and fully man, cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in the, the greatest moment of theological tension, Jesus... The completely innocent died so you, wretched sinner, can live. That, my friends, is the tension between grace and truth. Knowing truth, preaching truth, telling the truth, and then graciously sacrificing for and loving unconditionally all those who fall short of that truth. That is the tension that we need to walk in. That is the tension that we are called to. And so it is my hope that this cheesy little piece of rope would help you to remember that. So so take it home okay, and just put it somewhere where you can see it. you know. And, and then every once in a while just pick it up and just pull the ends just like this and tell yourself Jesus was full of grace and truth. And because of that, the tension between those two is where salvation is. Let me pray for you. Lord God, this is one of those things that I will struggle with Over and over and over and over again. Because I love grace when you're giving it to me. But I struggle to give it. When it's about other people, Lord, I want to be about the rules. I want to be about the truth. When somebody does me dirty, I want to point out my rights and and tell them what the law is about and what, 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 what the truth is. But then when I fall short, I want people to give me grace. Lord, help us to walk in both of those things. But We live in a culture right now that is just consuming itself. It is self-destructing right before us. Right? But on one hand, we don't want to be those Christians who are standing up and who are continually outraged about everything and who are just completely at odds with everybody and, 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 and coming off as hateful, mean-spirited, bigoted people. But at the same time, We don't want to be those people who who are going to let everything go because we know, we know, Lord God, that there's there's a penalty for that. That there are certain things in your word that you say that are just irreconcilable. Lord, so help us to walk in this. Help us to just... Love people unconditionally. Yes, still point them to truth. Still tell them sin is sin. Still tell them that there's only one way to be saved, and that's Jesus Christ. But at the same time, if they don't want to follow, we going not love them anyway. And we're going to put our arm around them. We're going to care about them. And then as people become new Christians, and as they struggle and, and they fall down, then we're just going to just nurture and care about them and, and help them along, Lord God. and I pray, Father, you just give us all spirit to just walk in both of those. To be gracious, but also to walk in the truth as well. And I pray, Father, you'd raise up a people in this congregation who were just sold out 100%. That they're not on the fence. They're not marginal Christians. They're not nominal Christians. They're sold out to get involved to go storm the gates of hell in this community and the world around us. And that we would see... We would see your people rise up and more people come to know you, Lord God, in this community. And that this community would be a beacon of hope that shines in the world. Father, we just thank you for your grace and your mercy. And I pray for all those who are traveling. We pray for those who can't be here because they're out of town. We pray that you bless and protect their families. We pray that you meet everybody's needs where they are. That you would help them to engage you in a brand new way today. But most importantly, Lord, in all that we do and all that we say, Lord, be glorified. And we thank you and praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For listening, you've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. And please consider partnering with us financially as we share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with our community and with the world.